Hey, you're listening to an Upbeat Rewind featuring Chris Helwick on August 3rd, 2020. This interview with Chris Helwick and his mental coach, Jeff Meyer, was actually split into part one and part two episodes, but we've combined them here for you today as just one lengthy Upbeat Rewind episode, and you're going to love it. Chris is a U.S. decathlete and Olympic athlete with an insane resume. We'll get into that throughout the episode, as well as his inspirational stories and a bunch of really great insight from him and Jeff on how to really master your mind and your body. You're listening to an Upbeat Rewind featuring Chris Helwick and Jeff Meyer. This is Upbeat with beatboxer, musician, speaker, and show host, Parker K. I am beyond thrilled, you guys, for this episode. We're joined by Chris Helwick. Uh, he is a professional decathlete. He's an Olympic hopeful for the upcoming Olympics. Very, very accomplished in the space of track and field. Uh, and we're also joined by Jeff Meyer, who uh, I guess is a mentor to Chris as far as the mind game is concerned. Uh, and he's also a good friend of mine and no stranger to this podcast. <laughs> uh, Jeff has been on two times before, episode 21 and 49. In the first one, we talked a lot about brain power. And in the second one, we talked a lot about uh, how powerful our hearts are. So, uh, both both of those very very good. Go check them out. But this episode is going to be very powerful. Uh, we're talking about two sides of the coin here, so to speak. Uh, both sides of training for the Olympics. Uh, Chris, of course, being the athlete and a physical expert, specimen, and Jeff, <laughs> specimen, <laughs> uh, and Jeff being the brains and helping out with some brain power and mental performance. So, Chris. Jeff, thank you very much for being on Upbeat. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Likewise. We have a lot that we could uh, pack into this episode, uh, and I definitely want to get into everything we can here, but I always start with story. So, Chris, if you don't mind, could you just briefly share with us a little bit about you? Like, Catch the listeners up, give us a quick summary of your journey and tell us more about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So uh, <clears throat> Jeff and I are from a town in Northern Colorado called Greeley, uh, but that, that's where I was born and raised, spent the first 18 years of my life there. And when I was 18, um, I moved to Knoxville, Tennessee to go to college. I went to the University of Tennessee for four years. I really got my start in decathlon when I was 17 and in high school. and it was really my high school track coach who got me into it. I'd actually been running track since I was nine, um, just like summer summer track programs, real recreational type thing. But when I got into high school, I got a little more serious about it. And I remember my coach came up to me one day. I'd been I've been kind of expanding my my breadth of of events, um, trying new things, you know, expanding into um, relays and hurdles and long jump and things like that. And I remember my high school track coach, his name was Marty. He came up to me one day. He's like, Chris, you know, the way you're catching on to these new events and picking up the technique, I think you might have the potential to be a really great decathlete. And I said, wow, that's, that's awesome. Coach, what's a decathlete? <laughs> no idea. I, I've been running track since I was nine and I, I was shocked that there was a track and field event I'd never heard of before. But Marty was a decathlete himself. And so he was always looking out for talent. 
And uh, he, he spotted that in me. He was really the person who ushered me into the decathlon and, and got me started on it. Went to Tennessee, had, had a really great four years at Tennessee. I was coached by a man named Bill Webb. Uh, we had a lot of success together. At the end of my college career, I was, um, I was a seven-time All-American. I was a three-time SEC champion. I, I was runner-up at the National League twice. I had broken a school record in the indoor heptathlon. Um, so I, I just, I just had an amazing experience at that school. I could, I could go on about it, but my experience at Tennessee <clears throat> left me very fulfilled in, in, in a big way. I just, I just felt like I had a very rich experience there, but at the same time, it left me wanting more. When I got to the end of my senior year, I felt like I hadn't quite reached my full potential in the events. Um, and I knew that there was this whole, you know, sphere of competition, you know, the post-collegiate world of track and field where people go to make world championship and Olympic teams. And, and I really wanted to, to dive into that. I wanted to see what that was all about. So for, uh, for five years after college, I devoted my life to training for and competing in decathlons. I always had part-time jobs. I was a volunteer assistant coach at Wake Forest during this time, but my, my whole life centered around decathlon. And so that, that's what I did until the age of 27. I, I retired from decathlon and athletics as a whole when I was 27. Uh, my final meets, my final decathlon of that career uh, was the 2012 Olympic trials. I, I finished fifth in that, in that meet. Um, you got to be in the top three to go to the Olympics. So that was the closest that I'd ever come to making the team. But um, alas, it wasn't meant to be. And that was also a pretty memorable meet because it was, it was when Ashton Eaton broke the world record in the decathlon for the first time. So that, that was, it was, it was just a very uh, sort of iconic meet to be going out on. But so when I was 27, I retired. Um, frankly, I was ready to be done. I was pretty burnt out at that time, to be honest with you. Um, I had been, I'd been grinding at decathlon for 11 years straight since I was 17. I mean, it was really the focus of my life for that whole time. By, by the end of it, I was just ready to be done. I was ready to experience new things. Um, I was ready to grow in new ways. Um, I was ready to see what life beyond athletics was all about. It was, it was a world I'd, I'd never experienced before. So the years following my retirement were, were very interesting. Um, you know, we can probably dive into some of this a little bit later, but it was a very difficult time right at first. Um, there was a lot of, there were growing pains when you move into a whole new life, a whole new world. Um, athletics had been at the center of my world, the center of my identity for a long, long time. And so when that abruptly ended, it was, it was pretty jarring. Um, to, to have to kind of recreate yourself. But over time, um, it got better. And over time, I ref reflected pretty deeply on my experiences as an athlete, as a decathlete. You know, in a sentence, I rekindled my love of being an athlete, which, frankly, I had lost in my later years of competing. Um, I got a little too focused on, on the accomplishments and not enough not enough appreciation for the process. And, and over time, I came to realize these things, and I had some pretty striking experiences 
that ultimately persuaded me that I needed to come back to the world of elite level track and field. I needed to come back to this sport, this event that I had left and show that it could be done in a better way. Through my time away from decathlon, through my reflections, I, I realized some of my biggest pitfalls that I made when I was younger, both physically and mentally. And so now um, I, I restarted my, my athletic career in 2019, competed in 2019. You know, we all know the story of 2020. And then I'll be competing for one final year in 2021 to you know, first go to the Olympic trials in Eugene and then on to the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Um, but this, this career of mine, the second career, I call myself a born-again athlete. And it's, it's all about having these incredible realizations about how amazing being an athlete is and how we so often lose sight of what is so intrinsically valuable about it. And we start thinking about the, all these external elements of competition. So this is, this, this, is all, this is a very rare second chance to try to do things right. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. That's an incredible journey. Um, before we get too into it, I do want to just, for those who are listening, uh, who might not know, can we just cover some terms real quick? Like what exactly is a decathlon or a heptathlon? What are these sports and competitions that you're so involved in? Could you just break it down for us? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, maybe should have done that a little bit earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, as, as I alluded, a, a decathlon is a track and field event, and it's really 10 track and field events rolled into one. So what happens is um, you compete in 10 events over the course of two days, five events each day, always in the same order. And that order is the 100-meter dash, the long jump, the shot put, high jump, 400, come back on day two and run the 110 meter high hurdles, the discus, pole vault, javelin, 1500. What happens is you get, you get points in each of these events. You're awarded a certain number of points based on your performance in each event. And then you tally all your points up at the end for a total score of around 8,000. And so the winner is the guy with the, with the most points. Crazy. I love that they save what I would assume is the hardest for last <laughs> in that event. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal running, you know, basically a mile at the end of two days of, of competition like that. But uh, there's, there's really nowhere else to put it. If you did it earlier, it'd kind of wreck you the rest of the events. Awesome. Well, what is it, I guess, about this space then that originally you were super passionate about and then kind of bringing it to more current times? What is it? still to this day that's continuing to fuel you to keep chasing after that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really the exact same thing. And then this is what's so funny about it is. So when I was a little kid, I was, I was nine years old, this super skinny, um, toothpick legs. Like that was my, it was almost the nickname for me. Just running around having a great time at track practice at, at competition. I was, my thing when I was young is I like to run a mile and I like to high jump kind of two, um, un, un, an uncommon pair, but that's what I did. So anyways, when you're a kid, you just love doing it. <clears throat> like it's, it's fun to win and you're trying to win, of course, but you know, getting a blue ribbon at your, 
citywide track meet on a Saturday isn't what you're you're living for. You're out there to have fun and like move around and be with your friends. And so when I was young and, and really, you know, well up through high school, that was my that was my mentality. That was my ML. Funny thing is, when when you start moving up the ranks of anything, um, but especially athletic competition, the status and recognition that you receive from doing well becomes greater and greater. It becomes more alluring and more alluring until you're finally knocking on the door of the Olympics, which is the pinnacle of, of track and field. And that, that golden goodie is really hard to ignore. And so what happened for me is I, I lost sight of what was so intrinsically enjoyable about being an athlete, just being athletic. I, I really do. I, I love movement. I love mo- using my body in very precise, powerful ways. And, and track is just a great um, platform for that. And so that's what that's what that's where it started when I was young. And then as time went on, I, I I really lost touch with that. I didn't I didn't realize how essential it was um, for for success. And so when I left the sport of track and field at 27, I was all wrapped up in. And, you know, what I was or wasn't accomplishing. And uh, I just sort of ignored what was the sort of day-to-day joy that I could have been experiencing. And then the years following my retirement, I, I eventually came back to the understanding that the experiential joy of athletics is the engine that drives any great performance. And that's the only way that it can be. I love that. And that's really relatable to anyone in any career in the sense of if you are doing what you enjoy doing, that should be a really good engine to keep you going is is the fact that you love it, you know. Uh, but we appreciate the breakdown. This gives us a really good kind of idea of of who you are, what you're up to. Uh, and I want to I wanna bring Jeff in here too, but let's talk challenges now. Like, I know that's not the prettiest thing to talk about, but what have some of the hardest things been in pursuing this, um, whether it's injuries or depression or struggles in your mind, like when it comes to performance and failures, like, could you expand on some of that? And Jeff, feel free to, to hop in here as well. Yeah, maybe I'll, so there's, there's lots of things that I could say. There are, there are many, many challenges and like you, you named some of the biggest ones. Um, but I, I will, I will, kick it off with, with one thing in particular that I think Jeff um, could, could add a lot to is that the things that I'm describing, so like losing touch with the understanding that just being athletic is the prize rather than, you know, the gold medal or whatever it might be. It's just because I, I had these epiphanies and I realized where I'd gone wrong before and where I need to to go instead never makes it easy. It is always, always a challenge to value experience over, say, external recognition and and, and status and, and things like that. So it's you know one, one thing for me is that it's always a challenge to you know as I said value the process of what I'm doing like the training, the preparation, value that day to day, get lost in the doing of practice, like just start throwing discus. And by, you know, 
the next thing you know, an hour's passed because, you know, you're just lost in the activity instead of worrying about, gosh, is this, is this good enough for my next needs? You know, am I going to score high enough to qualify for the Olympics or, or, or win the medal, whatever it may be? Um, it's, it's, it's always a challenge. Yeah, kind of what I heard there too, what's resonating with me is whether you're someone who's just getting started or whether you're the Olympic athlete, you know, obviously different levels, but it's still a hard choice to make. Like you still have to get up and go do, you know, and that's something I guess we can't ever get rid of. We we just always have that choice. You know, one thing that I've realized, you know, working with Chris is he, the process is really important to him. And, you know, we talk about flow state and he actually just talked about it. You know, he, he just said, you know, you start throwing the shot put and the next thing you know, five, what seemed like five minutes is an hour now. And there's the kind of the godfather of flow. His name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And he's Hungarian and he studied flow state for 40 years. And kind of the word that describes, he, he, he has a word that he says is autotelic, which means the gift is, is in the doing, not a reward or anything. It's, it's the, and that's what Chris is exactly saying. It's like, I love to move. And so that's the gift. That's, that's, I, I love that. So that's autotelic. And so we have these certain triggers to get into flow state. There's, They've studied up to 22 of them and how we can get. And any kind of endeavor, if you're in flow state, you're better. And I just read a big study the other day that just said these these neuroscientists said that they believe every championship is won because the athlete was in flow state more than any other athlete or the team or whatever. And so... Chris has been, I, Chris is a very cerebral athlete. He thinks through things much differently than I would say the typical athlete, Uh, a typical athlete. They go in and bust out whatever they're supposed to do. The coach says this and they go do it where Chris is always thinking of the process and how he can get better. And then of course him enjoying it and I just really believe a happy, a grateful athlete is one that's going to perform so much better than a guy that's always striving to get the gold medal. Now, that's not to say that Chris is not trying to do that, but he, I think he's understanding more and more that it's this process, this autotelic. And when you learn to get in flow state more, you perform better, period. I mean, it's proven there's 40 years worth of science behind it. One thing I really liked that Jeff said was that the, the challenge was the gift. And, and when you think about challenges, like the best challenges are the ones where it's enjoyable to solve it. And, and the way that, so I mean, to me, this, this has implications for broader society because it's like, all right, your objective is to find a challenge that's enjoyable. Like it shouldn't, you're not trying to find an easy life. You're trying to find a challenging endeavor that you like and, and for me it's like i love movement riddles like that's how i think of them is, is a movement riddle like can you make your body do this particular thing can you can you move it in this sequence in this pattern in this rhythm and so like that's that's why i'm good for my work 
is because I have to spend a heck of a lot of time trying to sort out these many, many movement riddles. And there might be a dozen in, in, in each event. I love yeah. that. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I was just going to say one thing. I think one thing that um, is our society, I mean, our society, we were born to try to be comfortable. I mean, that, that's, at least that's what our society teaches us. And, you know, every athlete that I work with, one of my goals is to have them say, I will be comfortable no more because when you're comfortable, you're not growing, period. And so Chris has been great about these challenges, you know, and, you know, it's like in our society, I'm going to work 30 years and what's my goal? Retire. And I'm going to, you know, I'm just a kickback and but you look at the greatest performers, the greatest athletes, and it can be in anything. It doesn't just need to be an athlete, CEO, you know, anybody. They're the ones that like Chris, and he's such a great model for this, is he loves to chase those challenges, right? And to be uncomfortable, you know, and that's, that's another huge gift because there's not a lot of athletes that will, there's very few athletes that will chase the pain that really want it bad enough to where they'll give up certain things to do it. And so I really believe our society, man, we cripple so many people by saying, man, just be comfortable, you know, just be comfortable. And if you can do crazy, now I'm not saying, you know, crazy, I'm not saying life and death type stuff, but just challenging yourself every day. And, you know, just one little thing, it was, it was just about three months ago and it was, it was eight degrees and Chris would be proud of me for this. It was eight degrees um, and it was snowing and it was 4.30 in the morning. I woke up and I thought, okay, I, I tell all my athletes to not be comfortable. So I got in a t-shirt, my shorts and shoes, and I went on, I went and ran for two miles it was eight degrees and snowing and the wind and it, I could have stayed in my bed and it would have felt so nice, but that little challenge. And so those little challenges that we each, and we, in our lives, we can have all these different little challenges It makes you better. And so that's the goal, you know, is to, is to be better. 90% of what we thought yesterday, we think today, how are you ever going to grow if you're thinking 90% in the past. So you have to learn to break those thought processes and think in a different way and you become a better athlete. Yeah. When we live in a very, uh, it seems mean to say entitled society, but like, I feel like we all just want things now. And I think it's crippling that we all expect shortcuts or expect things to be here right now. And so it's funny, like if you were to just, hop into someone random's home and watch the Olympics, they think that is just so unachievable. Like these people are inhuman, you know, for the, for the skill that they're at, because in their, in their minds, it's like, oh, I could never do that. Like you have to be blessed with a different, a different kind of body or a different kind of talent or whatever. And really all it comes down to is the, the choices you've made and the, and the way you've lived your life and accepting those little challenges all the time. And one thing that came to mind too, he always comes to my mind, but Gary Vaynerchuk, entrepreneur, CEO, he always talks about 
more than being a CEO and more than having millions of dollars, he loves the game. He loves the process of creating businesses and making money. And uh, he always talks about W's and L's, wins and losses, and how he loves his L's more because it teaches him so much more. And there's just a whole element of that that I think is fascinating to talk about because most people, they just want the wins. They just want the instant gratification. They just want the gold medal. But you got to love something enough to want the losses too and to want the lessons learned. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I think about when you say that is um, I think about my own career and like how I've, how I've learned so much about the mistakes that I made in the past. And I, and I ask myself, like, would you, would you go back? Like knowing what you know now, would you want to go back and do that all over again using the knowledge that you have now? And, and, I'm, and I don't think that I would necessarily because I really love what has happened as a result of those mistakes. I mean, I, I was in, I felt like I was in a tough spot for a number of years at the tail end of my career. That, that was ultimately the, the initial cause of me coming back now doing what I'm doing now. So it's like you can, you can always turn your mistakes into, into something more positive down the road. I have a little in my office, I have a little frame picture. I'm looking at it right now and it says, the master has failed more times than the beginner has ever tried. And I look at Chris's career, you're looking at let and and, and and it's not just failing, you know, not not reaching this goal or the, but can you imagine how many times he's failed in one practice? You know, and but you get up and you get better, and that's how you build that talent in your brain. But you know, most people just see all the, you know, it's obvious all the limelight and, and things like that, but they don't see the frustration and the hurt and the struggle that these guys put themselves through to get to that place to be the master where you're, you know, you're great. Yeah, and let's break that down too. Like in a in a practice. If you're really trying to get somewhere and it's just not happening, or if you lost a race or lost an event, or maybe even at your 2012 Olympic trials when you came in fifth, you know, which by the way, super incredible, but I know you really wanted that top three, you know? So when you have those losses like that, how do you just like shrug them off and not let that be something that pulls you down and turn that into something that's going to make you better? It's a learned skill. It is absolutely learned skill. Recovering from failure and learning from failure, you'll get better at it with more failure. I bet that has been, at least, that, I mean, that's been my experience. Everything that I, that I know tells me that that's pretty universal. So as you're trying to learn how to cope with failure, it's, it's hard in the beginning. But as you fail more and more and more, you start to figure out that one, it's not that big a deal. Two, it's inevitable and everybody does it. And three, there's an incredible amount of information in failures. And so if, you're, if you really are convicted to excel down a particular path, you will eventually find just how useful failing is. And I, I, I really remember a period of time in my life where I, I just kind of suddenly realized that 
I didn't care about embarrassing myself anymore. And that what I, I would do is I would just figure out, you know, what went wrong and how to do it differently next time. That's a great gift or a great way to train because there's so many athletes out there that don't want to be embarrassed. So I, I read a story the other day about Wayne Gretzky and he was out practicing and he was practicing. I, I, I think he's right-handed. I'm not sure, but he, he was practicing his weak hand and he had missed a bunch of goals with that weak hand. And they said, why is he doing that? You know? And he turned around and said, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to fail in front of the whole world because of just what Chris said. There's so much information in and how I can get better, you know, because of it. You know, and I think a lot of things too, when I work with athletes, mental fatigue is something that's really real. And that can be a real struggle for a lot of athletes. And when you're in the process of only thing, only thinking about instead of intrinsic, extrinsic, you know, thinking about the goal or the trophy or the ribbon or whatever, I noticed that when athletes struggle with mental fatigue, that's because their eye is on that outside source instead of where Chris is so great at is in is going inside and that's where the growth is but this mental fatigue you know and and some people it, it can be depression it can be a lot of different things and athletes really that's a struggle because they have to learn to deal with this failure right and if you don't learn how to deal with it well you be it becomes a real mental struggle and that's one thing you know that back to that autotelic when when an athlete just engages, you know, and when he engages, that's the goal. That's where he's happiest. And you can tell in Chris's voice and the way he talks about it, um, that's his goal. And that's why he's so good. You know, and he's not, he's a young man compared to me, but you know, in the track and field, how many other athletes are your age, Chris? You yeah, know, no, that's, that's a good point. It's very few. And I don't know if we touched on that or alluded to that, but I, I am definitely on the oldest end of the spectrum for decathletes, professional track and field athletes in general. How old are you? I'm 35. 35. I'll be 36 next year for the Olympics. And yeah, there, there just aren't too many um, track and field athletes competing in my age. There, there are, I mean, there are a few notables right now that are um, really successful, like for example, Aries Merritt, he's the world record holder in the 110-meter high hurdles. Uh, he's my same age. We were actually in the same class together at the University of Tennessee, uh, but he's 35, going to be 36 next year. And, and Justin Gatlin, a uh, world-class sprinter, I mean, he, I think he's 38. I could be wrong about that, but he's older than Aries and I, for sure. He was a Tennessee alum as well, actually. I'm glad that we kind of segued into this because I, I wanted to ask like more about what happened after that 2012 Olympic trials, like when you retired and essentially, I guess, went 
back to go be a normal person and <laughs> not do the, uh, I guess, the Olympic dream anymore. I don't know if I'm saying that right or yeah. properly, but um, what happened during that time period and where was kind of the mind shift of like, okay, I'm going to go for it again? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, to me, that's really like the meat of the story because that, that was my, that was essentially my uh, transformation period. Um, but you, you said it just perfectly. I mean, except that I wasn't going back to being a normal, non-athletic person. I, I was experiencing it for the very first time. You know, I, like I said, I, I was a sports kid since I was three years old. And so that was really the center of my identity for a long time. Yeah. Well, and sorry to cut you off, but no. opportunity cost too, I'm, I'm assuming is a big thing. Like we've talked about it here on the podcast before in some previous episodes, but when you say yes to something, you're also saying no to other things. And if you were saying yes to athleticism and being in the Olympics, that's a huge commitment. And there are probably a bunch of other things you were saying no to. So this period, I'm assuming you were exper experimenting with some of those no's <laughs> and making them yeses. <laughs> exactly right. You're exactly right. I, one of the most amazing things that happened after I retired was I, I realized like very suddenly as the rest of the world came rushing into me that I was interested in all kinds of other things that I had no idea. Like I didn't know I had so many interests when I stopped being a decathlete and started trying all, all kinds of new things. So yeah, it was, it was an amazing time, like in that respect. And it was also a difficult time because I was trying to reassemble my identity. I mean, that's just how it was. I, I laid to rest this huge part of me. And so I, I had to, to fill in that, that void with something. Um, it took a few years to do that. So for a few years, it was, it was hard for me. It's not that I was totally down and out. I just, you know, in, in, pri in my private life, I was struggling to understand who I was and, and how I fit into the world. But I, I will tell you a, a quick story about what ultimately got me started down the path that led me back into athletics. Um, because it's, it's quite unusual. I was, I was at a wedding with a, with a group of friends of mine. And one evening as we were walking home from the venue, going back to our, our Airbnb, one of my friends makes a comment about the way that I walked. Now, I've been hearing comments about the way that I walked since I was a little kid. People have always seen something peculiar in my gait. But for some reason, at the age of 30, you know, three years into retirement, my friend makes a comment about the way that I walk, and I couldn't get it out of my head. I went home after that wedding and I, I had a, a long history of taking a walk in the, in the evening after work just to clear my head. And I found that when I was going on these walks, I couldn't get this question out of my head. Like, what are people seeing in the way that I walk that I can't feel? Because for as long as I can remember, I, walking just felt as normal as could be. There was nothing unusual about it. So at the age of 30, I'm walking around my neighborhood every night, just deeply examining the way that I move and the way that I walk. And specifically what was happening was I was walking around and I was sinking all of my awareness into the inner sensations of my body, trying to feel which muscles were working, which muscles weren't working, what sequence 
my body moved in, what the patterns were, what the asymmetries were. And this, this continued for a long time. I mean, once I started on it, um, it just kind of snowballed. And, and I got more interested and more interested in this. And I finally got to the point where I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of maybe what was peculiar about my gait, but also what was inefficient about my movements in general. So, so the logical progression was just to try to, once I understood what was going on, try to change my body in some way, change what was working or what the pattern was by making these very, very subtle but precise adjustments in my body. So again, I, it's just what, what ultimately happened was I, I started exploring the, the inner landscape of my body and found that it was just this fascinating world trying to feel and understand the way that I moved. So again, this continued, it snowballed for a while. And then I had one particular experience that really solidified this for me. And it was really a point of no return. So less than a year after I started investigating the way that I moved, it was probably about nine months later, I've come to the conclusion that my left hip is doing a lot more work than my right hip when I walk. So with each step, my left is pulling more weight than the right. I can tell, I can feel it. And so, you know, I try with all of my might and all of my will to activate, engage my right hip so that it's working equally with my left, but I just can't do it for whatever reason. I just don't quite have the bodily control to make it happen. And so I'm getting frustrated. This was a challenge for me, uh, but a challenge I enjoy. So I, I don't know where I came up with this, honestly, but I, I thought to myself, well, if I can't make this change happen on my own, well, I'm just going to ask my body to make the change that I want and see if it'll do it on its own. And so I'm walking along, I'm walking down the sidewalk. I can remember it clear as day. And I said out loud, speaking directly to my physicality, I said, I want my right hip to work equally as my left when I walk. And instantly and spontaneously, I felt this array of contractions in my right hip going up the right side of my back into my right trapezoid and my right hip engaged in a way that I couldn't do on my own. And so this, this was this was pretty astounding for me. I was I was shocked. It was kind of eerie almost. It was like I had somehow communicated with this intelligence of my body that I hadn't really acknowledged or appreciated before and it spoke back to me it responded and it was it was just a very profound moment for me and so as as you could imagine that that really that turns it from a hobby to an obsession and from that point forward things just kept escalating and escalating and I got to the point where I realized that I, I had transformed into a far better athlete than I'd ever been in the past and when you combine that that sort of command over your physicality with the more psychological, emotional realizations that I had had about, you know, where my mindset was off when I was younger, you put these things together. And I just, I just thought I, I've come across something really special and it would be, it would be a shame not to take the opportunity to put these things into action and really demonstrate how this thing could be done better. And secondly, it was just the funnest thing that I could possibly imagine doing. Um, so it was like a combination of fun and meaning that has ultimately led me back into being a captain. 
Awesome. So you're going to approach this a little bit older, but you're like, you're coming to the table with a whole new kind of drive, a whole new set of tools in your backpack, so to speak, uh, that's going to make it even better. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, I, it's not really a remake. It's a total overhaul. So yes, I, I am older. I'm beyond my physiological peak, but I just have so many other assets that I really feel like I can best my previous self um, on the track by a significant margin. You know, I think he's, you, you can tell why he's so good. I mean, just listen to him talk, right? You, you yeah. can see he's not the typical athlete. That's, that's not a, a typical athlete doesn't think like Chris, you know? And so, but, you know, I think one of the things that one of his strengths can really be is, is taking this mental power and turning it into physical power. His age is not, you know, of course age is a little bit, but what he's learned about his body I mean that that is can be a gift that nobody else on the field has, you know, and it's all because of his age, you know, that kind of stuff. And you, you look at this, um, you know, he, he talks about this coordination and this kind of a a liquid coordination where it just you know kind of flows. And within you know my thirty thirty years of experience, I coached on a you know college level and a high school level men's basketball. But then I started doing this about five years ago on the mental side. And I developed a framework of, of how to, you know, train in certain ways. And you can tell that Chris is very cerebral and the way he approaches his sport. It's not, it's more now, um, more about being that cerebral athlete instead of just brute strength. You know, I think maybe, and I remember Chris us talking about this many times when he was younger, he would just, it's like, I just got to train harder. That's, that was his whole outlook. It's like, okay, if I've done eight hours, I'm going to do 10. That's where you get to a point where that mental fatigue. And then if you're mentally fatigued, your body is shot, you know, it just is. And so he's looking at it in such a different way, you know, and we've talked about, his heart intelligence and how important your heart and your brain communication is as an athlete. And when that's incoherent, so when your heart and brain are working together, that's where the gift is at. That's where he can really soar, you know, and fly. And you can see the javelin, you know, you can see all kinds of crazy things, you know, him jumping seven feet, there's a whole bunch of different things that I always, and Chris kind of looks like, it, you know, he's a really, you know, I'm an older dude, but he, he, I kind of look like uh, that Disney movie Tarzan, you know, and they take Tarzan and put him on the track and field as a decathlete. And I kind of, <laughs> Chris is about that six foot five. He's, he's that good looking, you know, that guy that will go out and really kill it. But the greatest thing about him is the way he thinks about his sport. The way mo, I'm, I, I've worked with, I figured up the other day, I've worked with over 3,000 athletes in the last five years. And he, by far, is the most cerebral athlete that I've worked with. Everybody else and their parents and their coaches, a lot of coaches, just think you got to go do more reps. You know, you got to, and, and, and he'll sit. I, I'm writing a book right now, and I have 
in my book, I have a, a, a chapter called Butt Power and Bleeding from Your Forehead. And that whole chapter talks about this visualization and meditation. Whereas in our society, I just read a study the other day that said the average person looks at their phone 95 times a day. If, you, if you're in the age of 18 to 24, you're doubling that. And so you're looking at your phone, if you're 18 to 24, like once every three and a half, four minutes. And so this distraction that we have in our society with phones and everything going on, Chris is so great about not getting that. He he has a talent of letting those distractions go and, you know, bleeding from his forehead, really sitting and learning how to meditate and visualize and bringing his sport to him in a way that very few athletes have. Just real quick, that, that was one of the things that Jeff really got me started on was visualization. And it, it's something that I've known about and kind of dabbled in since I was very young, I mean, probably my freshman year of college. But Jeff and I's work together really, really showed me how powerful it is to like feel and experience a future that you want to realize. When, you know, we, I was just in front of a Division One head football coach talking to him. And I said, you know, talking to him a little bit saying, you know, kind of what's your mental game plan? How are you going to approach this season? Different season, obviously, you know, with, with, you know, COVID and all that stuff. He gives me the pat answers about visualization. Well, we're going to visualize, we're going to do this, you know, we're going to, you know, it's all the pat answers that all coaches know. And so to kind of prove my point, I just tried to put him on the spot a little bit and said, okay, I'm, I'm your quarterback. Teach me how to visualize. And then I just shut up. I didn't say a word. And we had a very awkward silence for probably felt like five minutes, but <laughs> it was probably a minute and a half, you know, and he finally just came clean and he goes, well, I don't, I, I don't really know how to, you know? And so one of the things that I teach all my athletes is obviously Chris talked about the senses and stuff like that, but also developing, getting yourself into an alpha state, an alpha brainwave state. If you can do that, it opens your subconscious mind. Really great things happen. And you actually start performing like your visualization, you know? And so that's a really great thing. And there's just so much science behind it now. If you're not doing it, you're going to lose to the person who is. Jeff, is that is that what we call neurofeedback? Is so training yeah, brain waves, right? Getting into that brain. So alpha brain waves is kind of it's like that uh, relaxed awareness. Maybe is a good way to you know kind of talk about it. But the more like you've had those moments where you just were like, I can fly. You know, it's like just let me at it, and that's training those different. See, and most athletes don't do that. Most coaches don't have athletes do that. They just think it's more reps, get stronger, get, you know, they do a little of the mental stuff. But if you could train your athletes to get into this alpha state, you know, there's science behind it. It says you learn faster, you grow your talent faster. Everything you do is better if you can, because we're usually in this high beta wave. That's where most of our society lives their life is in this high beta where it's stress. They got so many things going on. 
But if you can slow her down just a little bit and get in that alpha brainwave, that, that kind of, that's where like the magic happens. You know, that's where uh, flow state, you know, that total absorption where time disappears, that liquid coordination, all that stuff happens. And that's where all that greatness happens. Cause you know, Chris has got the tools. I mean, he's, he's a phenomenal, you know, athlete, but he now is really prepared. Chris, how, and, and I don't mean to take your job, Parker, sorry, <laughs> no, <you're> but, <laughs> but um, how, how different are you now than when you were chasing the Olympics in 2012? I'm, I'm significantly different. I mean, I, 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 I call myself a born again athlete. I felt like I, I died and started an entire new life, honestly. Which is why you say that that period after you retired and then decided to come back was a transformation period. It was because you transformed into this, I guess, new. And you mentioned earlier, too, that you had a speaker sheet. So I'm assuming you're planning on, on speaking a little bit as well. Um, I, I have. Like, I've, I speak um, every so often. I mean, it's not like a, a standard tour or schedule or anything like that. But I'm, I'm more than willing to speak, and I do it pretty often. Just, just the groups and clubs and schools in the, in the area. Okay, sweet. So the reason I ask is because... I think Jeff does the speaking, I do the speaking, you do the speaking. I'm sure a bunch of the listeners are trying to tap into that space too or have similar kinds of things they're working on. So if we want to get in the zone before, say, we get on stage to go deliver a presentation, if we want to reach that flow state, if we want to tap into this, uh, you know, Jeff's saying slower down and and kind of center yourself and Chris was saying earlier, like you can visualize something and then realize it and make it a reality. So what are some things you could do to, I guess, mentally prep to get on that stage and deliver like a super powerful presentation? You know, I, I, yeah, I think about it. So I'm, I'm a novice when it comes to speaking, you know, I'm a, I'm an experienced professional in the world of track and field, but I'm, I'm just figuring out how to, how to speak well. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's not going to be some revelation or anything, but I think preparation is, is just so huge. It's like, you know, winging it is probably not <laughs> you want to go for. You know, that's, a, that's the Olympic athlete right there. You can't wing it. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> See, that's, to- that's totally backwards from beatboxing because <laughs> my best beatboxing is when I freestyle. <laughs> yeah, really? yeah. No, that's interesting. That is. But I, yeah, I think, you know, like knowing, knowing what emotions need to go with what segments of your speech and like practicing feeling that way when it comes to that section of your speech, you know, speeches should be dynamic. Um, you're, you're telling stories, you're, you're building things up and then you're, you know, lowering things down. You want to take your, your audience on a journey, essentially. So you've got to be emotionally dynamic. Uh, I think that's a big thing. And um, so, you know, just kind of tying in what we've been saying, like you not only rehearse the words you're going to say, but you rehearse how you're going to feel and the conviction that you're going to bring to those words. One thing that I would say, and and I've done, you know, I, I, I've been in front of some pretty big audiences, but I think what really changed it for me now, you know, Parker, we've, because of, church aspect we've been speaking for a long time 
in front of people. I remember when I was like seven or eight years old, getting up in front of people and speaking. So it hasn't really, some people like, you know, they'd rather at a funeral, they'd rather be in the coffin than give the speech. You know, it's that kind of thing. One thing that really helped me, I think, is I turned to my audience and didn't think about me. I turned to my audience and said, how can I make their life better? It made all the difference in the world for me. You know, whereas I was always, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? You know, and instead of saying, how can I convey this message so that maybe one or two people in that audience, you know, they'll walk out thinking, hey, maybe there's a different way to approach this, you know, and then I, I really believe what, what Chris said is, you know, preparation, you definitely have to know what you're going to say. Now, I don't believe in memorizing it. I believe in knowing it and owning it, but believing that, um, that work, I, I re, when, when the first time that we met last year, when I was out, you know, at that, uh, ignite your champion, when I spoke there, you know, I looked at my log and I think I prepared for that speech almost three hours a day for three months. And mm-hmm. I actually, I got up on a stage, I recorded myself, you know, so those are some, you know, and then there's just, you know, your energy that that's huge. You know, if you have butterflies, that's a performance issue. You, we can deal with that real easy. Um, Chris knows all about that when he's, you know, the Olympic trial, you might have a little, you know, bitter butterflies. And those, I tell every athlete that I work with, those are great. I'd be worried if you didn't have them, you know, because that can feed your energy. You just got to get them and fly them in formation you know, and, and get to that. But I really think that if we learn to really develop this alpha state in our society, we do not sit still. If we could just sit still and calm and when you feel that confidence wash over you, you feel stronger, you feel more prepared. It's just a gift. You know, a gift is to be able to have people sit still and no distractions, you know. When I first started doing this, I would take my athletes and I'd put them in my office and have them meditate. And I'm thinking I'm working with a lot of college kids at, at that time. And I thought, this is like, this is job suicide. This is going to kill me. <laughs> I'm locking kids in a dark room without their, I take their phone, you know, and they're going to go, you know, it's like, I'm done with you. It's crazy how they've, that was the most, that that was one of the parts of, in this framework, this, this framework that I teach, that's one thing that they started to really love. And Chris can talk about, you know, his experiences of just sitting still and just quiet around. Yeah, that would be, that'd be awesome if we could. I I was going to ask Chris too, like, as far as preparation goes for your events, is there kind of a process to, well, that's a kind of a dumb question, probably. There is probably definitely a process. <laughs> what is the process uh, that you go through to, I guess, approach the track or approach whatever it is you're going to do and mentally kind of prep for that? You're talking about like on a day-to-day basis or in, in competition? Let's do both. Like, yeah, if you're gearing up to practice or if it is the Olympic trial, like what you would do to rope in those butterflies and and turn it into good energy that's going to excel you forward? One of the most important things that I would say that guides me day to day is 
daily when I show up to the track, checking in with my body to see how it's feeling. So here's, here's just a direct contrast to how I used to approach things. I would show up to practice and I would say, okay, body, here's what's going to happen. You're going to do these things. You're going to run these intervals. And then we're going to lift these weights. And then, and then you can take a rest. You know, and I was like this circus master, like, you know, whipping the tigers around or something. Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> but now, you know, especially after that experience I had where I had this like conversation with the mysterious intelligence in my body, I go to the track and I'm like, hey, man, how you doing? How are you, how are you feeling today? What, you know, what, what can we do together today? And that is so important because it allows me to figure out how to progress in the most productive way possible. If I put my body through something it's not ready to do, it is going to hurt me more in the long run. I'm going to get injured or I'm going to have to sit out two days to recover from it. But if I say, hey, what, what are you ready for today? What can we, what can we do to, together today? Um, we can find out just what is the line of appropriateness. And that, that's really how you make gains over the long term is just doing kind of a manageable amount each day. You know, as we were talking about, meditation is a daily habit of mine. I do it every morning, not for very long. 10 to 20 minutes is my session, but I do it every single day. Um, it's usually followed by some sort of visualization. So I think uh, frequency of meditation is also a, a super important um, aspect of being ready. In terms of getting ready for a big day, like a competition, you know, to me, it's about, it, it's about showing up excited and like grateful for the opportunity of what you're doing. I mean, just as, as Jeff said, I, couldn't, I could not agree more that like the most successful and productive athletes are those who are grateful for, for what they're doing. So here, here's, here's a big part of it. Having people around me who like keep me focused and centered on the things that I really believe and espouse in, in those moments when it's so easy to get, to get your focus and attention drawn away to external successes and external events. Um, it's like when I have my, my inner circle, my, my group of people who support me, coach me, train me, um, got to have those people near so that I'm constantly reminded of, of where to, where to have my mind. I love that. So when, when you go to Tokyo, <laughs> is Jeff going with you? Well, you're darn, <laughs> you're darn right. I am <laughs> I'm front and center. <laughs> I'm excited about that. My, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to bring my wife or not. That's no, she, That's she, she's, I promise she's coming. <laughs> All right, we'll see. That's awesome. I think there's so much in, in everything we're talking about that is just applicable to anyone and anything that they're pursuing. But it is cool to see it on such an extreme level of athletics, you know, and to see how it really does take a physical element, but also just a mental and an understanding and a grateful element. You also kind of alluded to longer recoveries, like if you go too hard, that kind of a thing. One thing that kind of popped in my head is probably when you were a younger athlete, 
I say this because I interviewed months ago a, a professional BMX biker who said that the hardest thing for him was just taking a break. It was just stopping because he didn't want to recover. He just wanted to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. So I'm assuming that's similar to how you used to feel. And I would say now there's probably like an element of respecting the recovery process and maybe some more mental game there too. Yeah, you're 100%. That's that's really well articulated. It is respecting the recovery process. It's understanding that the recovery process is the other side of the coin. You've got training and you've got recovery. One of the things, one of the smartest things somebody said to me in the last couple of years is your training is only as good as your adaptation. And so if you don't allow your body to adapt to your training, because training is ultimately breaking you down. In the short term, you're breaking down from your training. And when you leave the track, you know, you're you're not as good as when you showed up. You know, so you've got to recover and um, you know, the stress is good because it, it guides our body in growing and becoming stronger. But, um, but yes, uh, you know, I'm getting away from myself, but the, the recovery is something that I, I respect greatly. And I, and I see something happening when I'm still, that's, I guess that's a good way to put it is that I, I don't, when I'm, when I'm resting, when I'm still, I'm recovering, I don't think I'm losing anything i understand that i'm in the process of gaining you know and that's that's a great way to what that's it's one of the best ways to say it is that it's the it's the program it's part of the program right so i've i've hooked chris up i have some software it that it's it it calculates your heart rate variability it's hrv and so you can look at that heart rate variability and if you were to look at it in the morning time it gives you a good idea of how your body's going to react to where you're going to go workout wise. And so, and that's one of the things in this framework that I teach athletes is that that heart rate variability can, can give you a lot of information. You know, some days it's like, okay, man, everything looks good. Go out and really push yourself. And other days can be like, you need to just be stretching, you know, and, and taking your time that way. And what Chris said was just so right. It's it, the other side of the coin. It, it's it is the growth, right? If, if you don't have any recovery, you're just breaking down all the time. And if you do it in a mindful way, where you're you're bringing your mind and your heart that that uh, coherence, you know that it's there's science behind this that shows that you will recover faster if you're in that coherent state, showing gratitude, things like that, that, you know, I, I was in front of a six foot six, 325 pound lineman the other day. And I said, today, we're going to talk about gratitude and forgiveness. And he looked at me like, I want to get better, dude, you know? And then I started showing him some of the science, what it does for your body. If you were to do this, and then he got on board. He's like, oh, I understand now. And just like Chris, the gratitude, man, if you wake up in the morning and you're so full of gratitude that you get to go chase this dream that, that Chris is chasing, there's not a lot of people that have the talent and that have the time to be able to do that. And so that gratitude, and I think he is a, um, he's a grateful athlete. Awesome. Well, and I loved too what Chris said about having an 
like a, an inner circle of people there to support you because it's hard to be grateful all the time when every phone call you have is <laughs> with someone who's being kind of a Debbie Downer, you know, got to kind of surround yourself around people and communicate with people who are going to build you up and support those good attributes. Definitely. Absolutely. Sweet. Well, I just had uh, like two more questions I really wanted to at least check the box on before I let you go, before we get into the upbeat seat. The first one is what is a typical, is a more generic to, I guess, someone training to go be in the Olympics, but what does a typical day look like for someone who's going through that training? Well, everybody's going to be a little bit different, but there's going to be some similarities as well. Um, but I'll, I'll run you through a typical day for me. So I, I wake up and I've got a morning routine. and It involves writing, meditating, reading, eating, being outside. So I, I kind of take some time to like get into a good place and like, like have, a, have a really nice day before anything really jumps off. Um, so if I can, I like to, to take that time and do those things. After that, it's usually mid-morning, and I, I just take care of administrative things. There, there's plenty of administra- administration that goes along with it, an endeavor like this, especially for an individual sport athlete like myself, track and field athletes, golfers, gymnasts, swimmers, people who aren't on a team necessarily. There's a lot of things to manage about your program day in, day out. There's media things like that. So that's usually like how I like to spend the rest of the morning. And then I devote the entire rest of the day, the afternoon, the evening to my training. Um, I, I prefer to train in the afternoons. Some people like to jump right out of bed and start doing stuff physically in the gym, on the track, whatever it may be. I prefer the afternoon. That's just how I've always been. And so that's what I do, whatever the day calls for. I might spend... 30, 45 minutes at home doing some like stretching or, or dynamic exercises in my living room before I go out to the track. So that I'm kind of, I like to get things going in my house before I head out, but then I spend time at the track or at the gym. And in the evening I'm doing whatever I can to, to tell my body start recovering from the stress that I put it through. Um, I eat dinner at the same time every night. I, I spend uh, a, win- a chunk of my evening right before I go to bed with my girlfriend. It just helps settle my mind. Again, it's like you surround yourself with somebody or, or somebody's who um, keep you in line with the things that, that you really believe your, your values. And then I'm, I'm in bed early. I, I sleep seven and a half to nine hours a night. Now I've got some follow-up questions, but I'm sure with your eating, like you probably have to eat more calories than people who aren't training for that stuff. And then also when it comes to training, I mean, again, at decathlons, 10 events. So do you, do you have ones that you focus more on or do you think like, or would you say that you're putting the same amount of effort into each of those? I, I am not. No. And, and I wouldn't say any decathlete does. For one, the decathlon is generally a, a speed and power event. So that you, you want to train your speed and power more than, say, your endurance. Uh, you know, the 1500, it sucks to suck at it, for sure. So you, you don't want to do that. But you also can't put all your time and energy into getting good at the 1500 because it just doesn't pay out. So here's, so for, so for one, I'm just saying 
training, the amount of time and energy you put into each event does vary a lot. But here's how I look at it. To be a good decathlete, you've got to be an exceptional athlete. I mean, it's the test. It's, you know, it's known as the test of the world's greatest athlete. And so you, you have to be athletic. I like to approach decathlon training in the sense that I am training my athleticism and I'm using the decathlon events to make me a better athlete. They are, you know, puzzles, riddles in themselves that help me develop my skill of being an athlete. So I, I really look at it like that. There's, and, and, and when you do that, you can train for many events at one time. If you work on getting faster, let's say, you're just more, more power and more top end speed, you're affecting, you know, six or seven of the events right there. So we don't look at it as much about, okay, how am I going to break this up into 10 chunks? It's more like, what are the attributes of athleticism that I need to be the best decathlete I can be? And then we train those attributes. Got it. Well, that's awesome. It's good stuff to know. I'm sure the listeners are going to appreciate it. I appreciate it. The, the other question I had that I really just wanted to get checked was, yeah. how do you overcome the temptation to, I guess, to other decisions that wouldn't be helpful? So if you're tempted to sleep in, if you're tempted to eat something you shouldn't be eating, if you're, if you're tempted with those everyday challenges, how do you just like whoosh them away and do the things you're supposed to do? Yeah, good question. Well, for one, I, I'm I'm always encouraging myself to sleep in rather than, than get up. It's, <laughs> it's just so critical. It really is. Yeah. But um so I, I you know, that's a it's a tough question. It really is. There is no easy answer, but I'll tell you this. The way to overcome temptation and things like that, eating the wrong, like eating the wrong thing, drinking the wrong thing, um, you know, as an athlete, these these are really detrimental. We're staying out too late. That's 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 really detrimental. The the way to do it is to be doing something that's more fun than that. So maybe the payout isn't as immediate, the gratification isn't as immediate. But like, do you have a story in your mind about what you're doing that's more fun, that's more exciting than staying out late and having a couple beers? Or, or indulging in the chocolate cake or whatever, whatever it may be. Um, it's really, it's, it's about, it's about having more fun in the other space. That's, the you know, one thing that what he said that I uh, listened to an interview the other day with a professional basketball player that's 38, 39 years old, still playing. And the interviewer said, it must be great to be you because you can just do anything. And he looked at that guy. I thought there was going to be lasers thrown <laughs> through his eyes. And he's like, what are you talking about? He goes, my life is just the opposite of that. He goes, I have such a huge list of the things that I cannot do because I want to be great, because I'm this age. So it's not about anymore what I can do. It's all about, I can't go out and party like the, you know, like the young kids do. I can't drink beer like the young kids do. I, there's a lot, my whole list of things that I can't do is 10 times bigger 
than the ones that I can because everybody thinks he's just so gifted, right? He can just do everything. And just like Chris, there you find out what your list is and then you start really living within those boundaries, you know. And then one thing that, you know, kind of for me spurred a thought was, you know, he kind of said, it's, I think one of the things that is making it fun or maybe more gratifying than that piece of cake, you know? And so this basketball player looked, he goes, I like to win championships. <laughs> that's, that's his fun. That's what he loves to do. And so having that beer doing this or doing that is not as important as him being able to compete at such a high level. You know, and I just love that because I think a ton of athletes that are gifted and that's who I work with a lot of really elite athletes and they just think a lot of them think they can just go out and, do, you know, eat their fried chicken, you know, drink their, do whatever, and they can still perform the next day. And they, when you're younger, you probably can, but I keep telling them, it's like, okay, just, just think how good you could be if you didn't do that. You know, so that list is really important. This is an amazing episode. Do you guys have any other, I guess, things you'd like to share before we get into the upbeat seat? Hey, Chris, tell them what you eat. <laughs> uh, well, I, I do eat a lot. It's true. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I eat a very uh, wide variety in my diet, but like my breakfast is always the same. I have... A, four eggs, fried and butter, about a can of black beans, some vegetables, kimchi, a whole avocado, blueberries. Or sour, is there sauerkraut? I remember that. You know, either some kimchi or some, some sauerkraut, something. Okay. Um, blueberries and tea. That's, that's my breakfast every morning. That's about 1,500 calories. Dang. That's and how, how much calories... Or how many calories do you need in a typical day then, I guess? Yeah, it's, uh, it's probably around 4,000. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly. I don't um, keep track. I, I wrote a blog once about what I have for breakfast. So that's why I know the details of like the, the calories of my breakfast. But uh, I think it's around 4,000, about, about twice as much as what the average person would eat in a day. Well, that's crazy. Well, thanks for opening up to us and sharing us all this amazing insight about what it takes, you know, both sides of the coin, the mental side, the physical side uh, of being trained, of training to be in, in the Olympics. That's incredible. Um, are you cool if we move into the upbeat seat real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Upbeat seat. Chris, what makes you upbeat? <laughs> um, life is for fun. And, and that's all there is to it. Do you have any weird talents or uh, useless skills? Um, I, I wouldn't call it useless. I think I think it's it's useful, but it, it you know this day and age, it's not. It's more of a well. I, my my skill is this. Um, I'm incredible at building campfires. <laughs> I, I love fire. I have ever since I was a little kid. And I just, I just love going into the woods and making a fire. And I'm really, really good at it. Awesome. Love that. Who is your number one influence or inspiration? Oh, goodness. Number one influence or inspiration. Um, I'm going to have to say Alan Watts. 
Alan Watts, a, a, a philosopher lecturer in the 1950s, 60s, uh, 70s, 80s, and he was all about bringing um, the philosophies of the East to the West. What's your go-to music playlist for training? Uh, Mozart piano concertos. That is awesome. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I was expecting he, something a bit more. You know, he's a different cat. <laughs> They're brilliant. The, Mo- the Mozart piano concertos. They are incredible. That is so great for your brain. <laughs> it is phenomenal for your brain. So if any other athletes out there listening, quit listening to whatever and listen to some Mozart. <laughs> What's your favorite word? Um, specificity. It, it, ju- it has like a, there's like a finesse when it comes out of your mouth. It has a nice rhythm to it, specificity. It's it's about the experience of saying it. It's not really what it means. <laughs> What's your favorite TV show? Ooh, favorite TV show. Uh, Sherlock was an incredible series on Netflix. Other than the Olympics, obviously, what is something on your bucket list? On my bucket list? Um, I don't know. That's it. I, I'm oddly like without an answer. I'm like, I think I've been so absorbed in the current project that I'm in that I haven't really, I, I mean, I could come up with something, you know, something trivial, but honestly, like I have been so hyper-focused on what I'm doing that I haven't really desired to, um, you know, go out. I didn't have a whole another life goal, I guess. But I'll tell you this as I'm speaking to contradict myself. I love climbing, climbing mountains, mountaineering. My bucket list would be to climb something. Not, I don't have anything in particular, but when I'm done with my athletic career, I definitely want to get into some mountaineering. Free solo. Uh, one of those amazing movies. Not for me, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not for a lot of people, I have a feeling. <laughs> uh, another music question, but what does music mean to you and how has it played a role in your life? Even though I, I love the Mozart and classical music, music for me, for most of my life, has been about the lyrics and the message. And I'm so I'm I'm as much into like underground hip hop as I am classical. And um, I, I think that music, especially like hip hop, is poetry to words. And uh, so that poetic expression that comes through in, in that sort of music is what I and a lot of types of music is what I has really been the most meaningful thing to me. Awesome. Favorite social media platform and where can people connect with you? Yeah, I, Instagram is my go-to. That's where I, I. That's what I have in mind when I create all my content, even though it goes everywhere. Where else? So Instagram is a great place. My handle is what the Helwick, separated by periods. Um, you can probably just search Chris Helwick Decathlon as well. But yeah, that's where you can find me, and, and on Facebook as well. Awesome. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna send this out with a beatbox. I'll yeah. say. Uh, Put your name in it and maybe maybe Olympics 2021. Nice.
Yeah, baby. Awesome. So, uh, that is awesome. <laughs> Sweet. Well, to wrap up the this episode, uh, when are the Olympic trials uh, and where, what can people do to, I guess, keep up with you and follow your journey? Yeah. So the Olympic trials will be next June. Trials and Olympics were postponed one year, almost exactly. So next June is the trials. And then in late July and into August are the Olympic Games. The best way to keep up with me is for one on social media, as I mentioned, but I also have a periodic email that I send out that just goes a little more in depth into how I'm doing, what I'm doing, um, what's going on in my life. And people can find that at chrishelwick.com. We uh, here at Upbeats are rooting for you, man. We, we we appreciate having you on the show. And Jeff, thank you for coming on as well and sharing your your insight as far as the mental game goes. No, this is this has been phenomenal, you know. And Chris is is uh, he, I, mean, I just wish the best for him. He's just such a great he, he's a great athlete, but he's even a better person. We'll put it that way. Thank, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure working with you too, Jeff. And I, I'm glad we get another year together. Uh, postponement was quite a, a blessing in disguise. And Parker, thank you very much for having me on. It's been cool to, you know, I, I talk about my story a lot, but it's been cool to have um, this angle on it, the upbeat angle. So I appreciate you having me. Thanks guys very much for, for being on the episode on Upbeats. I appreciate it. Love Upbeat. Thank you. <laughs> this is Upbeat with beatboxer, musician, speaker, and show host, Parker K. Subscribe at parkerk.co.